Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast. I'm your host, Heidi E. Wilcox, bringing you conversations with authors, thought leaders, and people just like you who are looking to connect where your passion meets the world's deep need. Today on the podcast, I got to talk to Dr. Sue Russell, Professor of Mission and Contextual Studies at Asbury Seminary. Prior to coming to the seminary, Dr. Russell was the Associate Professor of Anthropology and the Chair of the Department of Anthropology at Biola University. And before that, she spent 17 years in cross-cultural ministry and field research with Wycliffe Bible Translators in Southeast Asia, where she worked with a committee of national pastors to complete the translation of the whole Bible into the Toggle language. We talk about a lot of things. We talk about her call to ministry, and we talk about her book, Relationship, Changing the Conversation about Men and Women in the Church. This book focuses on relationships, specifically brother-sister type relationships that are based on love, humility, and mutuality rather than specific roles. So we talk about what that means and what that can look like in our context. Let's listen. Dr. Russell, I am so glad to get to talk to you today. Thank you so much for being on the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast. Even though we're doing this remotely, it is so good to see your face through the video feature. So thanks for being here. Well, thank you for asking me. I I enjoy being able to talk and I get excited about um, things that God is teaching me. So this, this is fun. Thank you. The, my burning question, we're here to talk about other things, but one of my burning questions is, I want to know about your time as a forest firefighter. <laughs> um, yeah, I kind of stumbled into that. Um, when I was growing up, I had three goals. I, I wanted to play professional baseball. I didn't know that girls weren't allowed to, but I, I wanted to play professional baseball. I wanted to be a firefighter. And I wanted to be a mountaineering instructor. How I got that, I have no idea. I grew up in the middle of Southern California, you know, big urban center, but I always loved the mountains. So when I was in college, um, I was a forest management major. I, I always wanted to be outdoors. So that made sense to have a career that was outdoors. And part of being a forest management major is we have opportunities to work for the Forest Service. And it turned out it was, um, I don't know if it was the first year or it was very new, um, around Title Title Nine, you know, things really opened up for women. And so it was the first time they were allowing women on the fire crew. So I was one of two women on a 20-person 20, 20 fire crew. And so there was a little bit of pushback from, from some of the guys. They were okay with us doing the day-to-day stuff. Like we did a lot of, um, uh, once, once people, um, had a timber cut, we would come in and we would clean it and get it ready for burning. Um, but one of the things the guys would say, especially one of the older guys would say, women shouldn't be allowed to go on project fires. Project fires are fires that are larger than a thousand acres and they la- usually last more than one day. So you're usually on the fire line um, several days. And, and so he just thought women should, didn't have the capacity to do that. So during the summer, we got called to one of those 
project fires, except it wasn't. It, we got called um, to an area. They had a big a lightning strike, one of these dry lightning, and we, we arrived, our fire crew arrived, and the fire boss said, we don't know if we have 10 or 1,000 fires. So we just spent the day running around putting out small fires, and we watched as the fire across the ridge grew bigger and bigger, and that was our project fire. So we were sent over there. It was up to 6,000 acres. And so when you're on a fire, you're on 24-7. On a project fire, then you're on usually 22 hours, and you then go back and eat and sleep and then back on the fire. So usually in the early morning hours, they kind of calculate where they need crews. So it's just exhausting work, and you're on the fire line. Um, sometimes you're sleeping on the fire line. Um, but for 10 days, we we were fighting this fire. And we were maybe, um, at the time, uh, there was probably a 1,000 fire crew total, and there were maybe 30 women. Um, so wow. it's quite, quite unusual. But after we got done, I kept up with the guys. The other gal kept up with the guys. If the guys carried 80 pounds of water up the hill, I carried 80 pounds of water up the hill. In fact, I outlasted a lot of the guys um, just because I had done hiking and, and that kind of stuff. Um, so after that, the same guy, and you know, he, was, he came up to me and, said, I said, and he's like, well, some women can be on Project Fires. Um, but anyway, so he kind of, you know, it was like, okay, we had proved ourselves that we could keep up. We weren't a burden. We actually were helping. Um, my other fun thing is we had a crew from the South um, because, again, it's it, we had a very high burn season. And so I was working with another guy, and we had the portable uh, fire truck. And so we had 500 gallons of water and we four-wheel drive. So we were driving to different hot spots and um, putting water on them. So there was a, a Southern fire crew um, that we were going to, and there's a, a maybe a little four inch sapling in our way. And so I just got out of the truck, grabbed the ax and, you know, chopped it down in a couple strokes and got back in the car and we got to them and got the water. And, you know, about four hours later, we came back around to them and their fire bus, bus just kind of saddled up to me and said, I just want you to know that my my boys gave you an A plus on that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, it was it was it was fun. Um, and again, I, I I had never been in a situation where my gender, if I could do the skills, ever prohibited me from. Now there was skepticism: can the woman do the do the job? And once you demonstrated you could do the job, there was. I mean, even if, even in, as a fire management major, there weren't very many women out of a class of fifty. There'd be two of us, and I always told people the guys were really polite. As you know, they would open the door as long as you were carrying the equipment. Um, <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know, so so you know during that, and even then, I I was able to go to National Outdoor Leadership School and actually. Um, uh, do mountaineering for 30 days in the Rocky Mountains and it was school and that's where I wanted to be a instructor and I was asked back to come back to their instructor school again it was my gender didn't didn't hold me back from being you know being asked to come back and um, do the school to become one of their instructors so um, I even played on the boys baseball team in high school 
um, again, the guys were like, you know, they'd come up to me and go, yeah, you're pretty good for a girl. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so in my life, I've, I've participated in things that once you demonstrated you could do something, there wasn't a barrier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a yeah. lot of sense. So what changed for you? Because you're associate professor of anthropology and chair the de- and um, at Asbury Seminary. Um, do I have that right? If I don't, um, yeah, yeah, correct. Me. But yeah, like you're you're a professor at the seminary now. So what what changed your mind? Because that's a completely opposite career path. Yeah. Well, my fourth year of of university, um, actually there was a actually she came out the third year. We became there was this new kid on our softball team. And I'm still in contact with her, but she was this little squirt and, and she was going out from my position. And what she didn't know is I was the all-conference catcher. And so she wasn't going to really get my position, but my coach asked me to um, train her as my backup if I got injured. So she so impressed me. I mean, she worked harder than all of us and she wore this ichthus on her shirt right so Mm -hmm. she was this um but she just loved all of us i mean she just loved us and i remember thinking i i gotta find out more about this person um and so we just had these long conversations she never shared with me she told me she was just too intimidated you know as a catcher you have to be kind of intimidating and she was just too intimidated of me but she told me later that she and the director of Campus Crusade used to sit outside my dorm window and pray for me. Wow. So the next year we became roommates because we were staying up till all hours talking anyway. And um, I just remember, um, so she started this Bible study called um, um, 10 Steps to Christian Maturity, but she skipped the first one. And I, being very competitive, decided I was going to do the same Bible study, but faster and better than her. So I started with uh, I started with the one that she skipped, which was how to know Christ personally. So there in my room, all by myself, she had gone. Um, I just was overwhelmed with Christ's love. And wow. and I just I just I just asked Christ into my life then and and so um, it just transformed me. And I found myself reading scripture, and um, then um, her name at the time was Jeannie Bogroff. It's now Ganzel. Actually, we're still friends after, what, 40 years. That's awesome. She discipled me. I'm like, here I am, kind of the tomboy, and she was like the Barbie. And, And God just sent her into my life, and she just loved on me. And she'd come to every home game. She didn't know a thing about softball, but she'd come to every home game. And do you know by the end of that season, half the team were Christians. Wow. Just because, just because this loving presence, never preaching, but loving presence, just discipling us, just being there. Um, she even learned rock climbing because that was kind of my thing. And, um, so, you know, we had this little discipleship group and it's like, okay, who's going to teach us how to do rock climbing today? So I took them all out and, you know, showed them how to, you know, do some stuff with ropes. And so anyway, that was, that was kind of fun. But um, it was during that time that, that God really, I, I sensed this, um, 
I just kind of had a pause. I wanted to use my gifts and talents and my interests um, to reach people. I mean, and, and I thought as a forest manager, we, we were trained to be forest strangers. Um, I wouldn't really have a lot of contact with people, which was the, my original idea of being a forest ranger, just kind of being out in the forest on a horse and by myself, enjoying nature. Um, so I began to really pray about what the Lord would have for me. And so I really felt that God was three criteria. I wanted to be involved in evangelism discipleship. I, I was a crew baby. You know, that's what we did. Um, I loved doing it. And I wanted to use the gifts and talents and training that God had given me. I figured my passions and training and stuff. And then I really wasn't interested in going overseas. I'd never been overseas. I mean, Tijuana on the border, but that's it. Um, but I had discipled a Chinese a gal from Taiwan. I said, if you're going to send me, I, I think China. Um, so I just laid those before him and I looked at different things, even like management and, you know, should I do a business management, a master's? I dismissed Bible translation because I hated languages. Um, <laughs> now that I've had to study. Oh, the irony. <laughs> I know, just don't ever do that. Um, but I, I happen to be in, in our house and I lived with seven other women, other people involved in crew. And i never seen it before, but she got the Wycliffe Little Magazine, and it had this big thing on, it said lost. And somebody had gotten lost at Jungle Camp, and they had to do a search. And I'm reading it and going, oh, my goodness, they're doing it all wrong. Um, I had been trained in search and rescue, and I thought, I thought, well, maybe they could use someone like me who could train missionaries to how to do wilderness stuff and can't, you know, search and rescue and surviving in the world because I love doing that. Yeah. So I sent in the coupon into Wycliffe, you know, for more information. They sent me all this stuff back. Of course, you know, I began reading. I thought, what a great way to do evangelism, but to go up to someone and say, what is John 316? You know, just read John 316. And then what a great way to do discipleship, but to go through the whole New Testament with somebody verse by verse as you're translating and discussing. I thought, Okay, but I know, I know, I don't do languages. So being being obedient, I had a, a, a friend in church whose daughter was in Wycliffe. So I said, can I have lunch with you? Um, talk more about Wycliffe. I figured God would close the door. And in the middle of this lunch, out of the blue, the guy asked me, are you good at math? Huh. And math had always been my best subject. Yeah. I love math. And he said, if you're good at math, you'll be good at the linguistic analysis that's involved in Bible translation. And, and you were like, like, this is not the foreshadowing. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no. Well, I knew China. Wycliffe was not working at China at that time, right? So I'm going, I'm safe. So, <laughs> so. Spring break, first time in six years, I went back to Southern California. My roommates were come down here, so I went. And since we were only a few miles from then the Wycliffe headquarters, I asked if I could interview. I mean, I'm pursuing this until God completely shuts the door. So I interview and find out more. And he says, would you like to come to chapel? I'm going, sure, I'll come to chapel. And who should be there but Kenneth Pike, returning from his trip from China, 
and discussing the possibility of Wycliffe working in China in the near future. <laughs> so, so off I went, sent in my stuff. I I knew nothing. That's as much. I, I didn't know you took three semesters of graduate linguistic training. I thought one semester I get to go to the field. But I did. So within two years, we were on the field. So I had a colleague. Um, I was one of those. I was really involved in our churches. So I didn't have to go raise support. People, people came to me and wow, the churches. Awesome. I, I had been involved in churches. And that's the thing I tell students. I said, be involved in churches. You know, they knew me. I, mm-hmm. I, I was their new Christian, asked all the, you know, questions as new Christian. So by, by within three years, and that includes language school, we, we found ourselves in Southeast Asia and we both felt like we wanted to work with a group that were already Christians because we, we felt that we should be more facilitators. And this was before people were talking about partnership or facilitation. This is early eighties. And but so there was a church who um, had been Christians like 40 years and still didn't have translation. They were the largest of the language family. And we just felt called to that. So we started our language and culture learning and spent a couple of years. And then my colleague had been corresponding with somebody she met. In, so anyway, she, she left to get married. And that's when we had a sponsoring agency say, we're going to fund this and so I went back. So realized I had only been a Christian what three years, three or four years wow. before I went. I went to the field, right? And so I'm working with all these amazing elders and Christians. So you know, because we were in a close country, a sensitive country, they couldn't. We were there working under the state museum, and we could translate things of high moral value. Okay. But we were working on linguistic and anthropological projects for the museum, doing language, what we call language development, um, recording the language, writing it. Um, I was doing literacy in the in the village and doing things like preservation of language and anthropological studies. You know, there aren't very many categories for a white Westerner Christian (laughs) in their culture. So they wanted to call me missionary. I'm going, no, 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 you cannot call me that. And so they wanted to call me pastor. I said, no, 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 can't call me that. So they came up with Ali. Ali means younger sister. Okay. So I had to learn to become a younger sister. So these guys were my, my older brothers. And so as a young single woman, even just young single, I had no say in that culture, and my resources for were used by the elders. And so I had to learn how to work within as a younger sister in that culture, which meant I wasn't in charge. And that's a whole nother story about just the committee bringing revival to the area, and um, it became a community-owned, you know, the 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 translation committee was able to pool the resources of these 60 little village churches spread over like 15 days hike. And it got used them to bring revival and to complete translation. And I got to be socialized by these amazing Christians. So my Christianity was very different. I saw things through their worldview. One of it was like the spirit world where healing 
you know, I'm reading, I've never noticed how many times Jesus healed somebody but casting out a demon until mm -hmm. I'm living in a culture that heals people by casting out demons. You know, their question is, who's going to protect me from the spirit? So I got to watch them burn the black magic kits and baptize people. And also it's very community oriented. Your, your resources belong to the community. When I came back with my first doctorate, they all sat around these elders and they're all talking. And the conversation was, what are we going to do with our doctorate? Wow. No individualism whatsoever. Well, you do have individual, but I mean, it's sort of you, you are part of the community. This is a resource that you contribute. Um, right, right. That's what I mean, kind of. It's not, sounds very it's different. It's not my than, resource. It's our resource. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Really awesome. Yeah. So anyway, so that's that's kind of the background. And um, we completed that. I'll go on to how I ended up in the States and married to David. So we do yearly planning because we're out in the village. So our, our directors kind of want us want to see what we're doing in the year. And I was doing my yearly planning and discovered I was done. Um, Old Testament was drafted. Um, New Testament had been complete. I'm like, first time. I don't have a long-term commitment. 15 years. I, I no longer have a long-term commitment. So I'm thinking, God's going to do something new. <laughs> so I had met David while I was doing my doctorate. And, you know, it, we liked each other, but he wasn't called to overseas. And so I just thought, you know. So during that year, um, my mother became critically ill. So I flew home. And the day after she was out of critical care, one of the professors who had mentored me um, had a heart attack. So I had been his TA and it was two weeks before school. So I, I went, I helped him great. You know, I, I, I had mm -hmm. jumped in and finished up his grades. And the day I finished grading, I was eating a pizza and here comes this guy, David comes by. I mean, uh -huh. he's way across campus. I'm supposed to be 10,000 miles away. And that moment, this is my last day on campus. I'm leaving. Here he comes. And he's kind of like, what you doing? It's like, well, <laughs> I, I finished. I'll be finishing up. He's, he heard finished. And turns out he didn't want to date a missionary because he wasn't called. And he didn't want to say that because he didn't want me to. So he had just disappeared. But he heard Aww. finished. He heard finish. He's like, you want to go out? <laughs> oh, oh, I love that. He heard finish and he heard, let's get started. <laughs> so anyway, my, it kind of really put David in a dilemma because I, I didn't want to go back until my mom was out of the hospital. She was doing long-term physical therapy. And so poor David didn't know if he should pray for my mom to get well or <laughs> pray that I would stay longer. So anyway, I, after that two months, so I, I went back to the field because I, I was a senior member. So I, I had a lot of responsibility that I needed to kind of train people into. So part of the conversation is how do you, how do you say goodbye after 15 years to people who have become like family? Right. So I asked, I asked if my husband would, would consider buying my elder brother a water buffalo. So imagine, <laughs> yeah. imagine you're there and I'm here, right? And you're going, a what? And that's exactly what he did. So anyway, the long story short, he, he came out um, and we went out to my village and he paid the full bride wealth um, for me. That was customary for Christians. And 
as soon as he paid Bridewell, the expectation is I would go back to his village because that also. So it was just an amazing way to to close a 15-year ministry yeah. um, with that community. And David yeah. was an honorable person for paying Bridewell when he didn't have to. So, Absolutely. Yeah. So that kind of closed that, you know, kind of um, but the impact on my worldview as a Christian. Um, I don't. I tell people I may look American, but I'm not. I'm I'm a I'm a Toggle Christian. That's that's yeah. where I was socialized as a Christian. Um, yeah. So it did give me a different view of culture and scriptures. Kind of gave me bigger prism. You know, it kind of gave me different ways of looking at scripture. Right, and your book Relationship, um, changing the conversation about men and women in the church. Um, it seems like it would pull a lot. From that, because you talk about developing brother sister type relationships, basing things on gifts, not not gender or not us versus them type mentality. So, why did you and Dr. Rose choose to write relationship shift? Yeah, I began teaching at Biola, so in Southern California, and my students would say things to me. I taught gender, I taught anthropology of gender, and I taught uh, women and development. So I would have students come into those classes and say things. And I'm going, where did you come up with something like that? <laughs> so I began to track it down. And that's the first time I discovered this whole complementary egalitarian debate. I had never heard of it until I came to that Christian college. So I began reading. Um, that began my journey of reading. And I'll be honest, you know, as an anthropologist, I would see them start biblical and then then slide into a cultural explanation. So mm-hmm. something that we're saying was biblical was really cultural. And they would be talking about roles. And as an anthropologist, we have very distinct ways of talking about roles that are attached to status. And I looked through scripture and I didn't see anything that really talked about roles in the way that I understood them. Mm-hmm. So, so I was reading, I was reading scripture not only through a theological because I was doing my MDiv and THM, but through a toggle and an anthropological view, and just seeing this whole debate not making sense, right? Um, and just saying because there are each each of the sides. You know, I fully affirm women in ministry, but the egalitarian and the complement both deal with changing structure. Interesting. So, in other words, in other words, if 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 somebody came and and taught complementarian to the the Toggle Church, they would have to completely change the ways that they were doing things because they they, you know, it it was a matter of gifts and talents, not gender. If you had the gifts and talents, you did it. And a lot of yeah. the younger, a lot of the women had less obligations, so they went to Bible school. Interesting. So they were the teachers, but they also, if they were young, were under the elders like everyone else. So the elders had this resource of somebody with Bible knowledge. And so it was just very odd to me to see this debate. And so I began to do papers on it and trying to sort out some of this, but I just didn't find a satisfactory way to talk about Mm -hmm. it because 
because when you look at it, it seems contradictory, you know, Galatians 3.28 and then Ephesians. Paul seems to be contradictory, and some people reject Ephesians because, oh, Paul couldn't write that because it, I'm like, no, there's something going on. Because I was involved in this anthropology and biblical studies conversation, I felt like I needed to get my doctorate in biblical studies. But I also wanted to include my anthropology. It turns out that the chair, the person who had up, headed up the history of early Christianity program at UCLA was one of the founders of what they call the context group. Oh, wow. So, and that was the group that was using anthropological models and New Testament studies. So I went and talked to him and he, he was like really excited to have a trained anthropologist in the program. And so I didn't, I thought I would write on gender, but classical studies to really do it right. Like, like some of um, Cindy West, you know, some of these people who really are, have studied classical texts a long time. That's, that was a young person's game. And I, I just, you know, so I, I kind of set aside, I did some papers and explored some ways of looking at it and just never came up with something. And I'm sitting in a seminar class and Dr. Parchi talked about the values in an honor and shame culture, and he listed all these values. And then he looked at Pauline values for relationships and for, mm -hmm. again, men. And I looked at those two lists. I saw, I've seen those two lists before. Yeah. And those two lists were what an anthropologist called Victor Turner used when he was talking about rites and passage and uh, so i have to back up in rites of passage those are those are transitions like it would be marriage would be a rite of passage mm -hmm. and what they discovered is that there's three stages there's a stage where you're separated from society so you leave your former status so kind of when you're engaged it's kind mm -hmm. of you're no longer single but you're not married so you've come you're you're engaged it's this weird stage um and so that's what he called liminal. It's this mm -hmm. between and betwixt. So mm -hmm. this is where you get to know each other. You and but what he he found in rites of passage, that's where status doesn't matter. So interesting. Wealthy, poor, they're all the same, and they have a different kind of relationships. It's, it's a mutual based on person relationships. It's called communitas, and then. In rites of passage, you have then another stage called reincorporation. So you go through the marriage ceremony, and the last thing, right, the last thing the pastor does is turn you around and say, I'd like to introduce to you the new Mr. and Mrs. Russell, right? That's, yes, that's yes. your, you're reincorporated. Now you're in society with this new status of mm -hmm. married. And so it was this liminal period. So what Turner does is these two ends when you're in status is called structure. So you relate by status. For instance, we're in status in Asbury and churches too. For instance, mm -hmm. um, I, I can walk into a fellow factory, Stevie Brola. I can walk into his office. We can go off. No appointment necessary. If he's there, I can just walk in. Right Now with the Dean who has a different schedule. I mean, he's open to it, but there's an appointment. However, with the president, 
<laughs> yeah, it, you know, you're not gonna, you know, there's, there's because of the status, right? You know, right. There's, there's a different way you behave. That's called mm-hmm. structure. That we behave based on these relationships of our statuses, whether it's wealth or education. You know, in class, students call me Dr. Russell. Mm-hmm. Outside, I mean, people here don't call me Dr. Russell because we're <laughs> not in the same structure, right? Right. So, right, and same, same. You know, so there's there's certain behavior based on the structure that we're in that's expected. Uh-huh. Okay, Victor Turner calls that structure. Anti-structure is where those statuses no longer matter. We relate. So it's kind of the Galatians 3.28. And for me, it was like, oh my goodness, it's both and. <laughs> we're, we're to live this new, and, and that's what it, you know, we talk about these dual um, identities in Christianity. And for instance, we talk about the kingdom being here, but not yet. So it's a temporal mm-hmm duality right we're, we're living in the new but also living in the old we're doing it both right mm-hmm. and for time right. and same with our, our our spirit right so we have the holy spirit but it's still in the old flesh and you know paul talks a lot <laughs> about that but we're going to get something else when we when the resurrection or we die we so it's the same thing on the social level mm-hmm. we are to live these new types of relationship that paul talks so much about Right. He talks so right. much about how to live with one another, how to love one another, how to, you know, look at all the one another's. That's this mutual relationship. <laughs> Paul has a lot of one another's, love one another, care for one another. That's the Galatians 3.28 in Christ. Right. There's not yeah. free slave. Yeah. We relate one anotherly no matter what our status is. However, right. we still have to live in status. And so, we right. So, to, how do we do both? Yeah, we have to live a new way within our status. So let's let's take back to. Um, so what we do is we redefine. So what Paul was doing in Ephesus with the household code, he wasn't reinforcing the household code, as complementarians would say, argue. He was redefining it to one of mutuality within a hierarchy. So hierarchy was transformed from power and exclusion to service and inclusion. Okay, so we have to use our our gifts and our status to help other people. Right. So this, like, for instance, talking about privilege, right? There's a lot of talk about Mm -hmm. privilege. And people are going, well, I'm going, no, don't be afraid of privilege. Because what privilege means is you have access to resources and, and stuff that others don't. How can you use your access mm-hmm. to to include others? I have benefited so many times from my male colleagues saying, "Hey, you know the person who sh- who you need to contact is Sue Russell. Hey, she's the one who's an expert on this. I, you know, a lot of my writing comes from people who male colleagues who have invited me and opened doors for me." Uh-huh. My mentor, you know, he opened the door into the context group. So anyway, the book. So the 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 first thing was my dissertation, which I look at this concept from Jesus, and it's it's kind of fun to talk about Jesus. If you look at him, he, there's often these these opposites in status. Um, my favorite one is the sinful woman, right? And Simon the Pharisee, mm-hmm. where Jesus is in 
is over at the meal. And so you have Simon who's high status. He's male. He's pure, right? He's a Pharisee. Mm -hmm. And you have this very low status woman who is, all we know is she's a sinner. So kind of the opposite of purity, sinner and a woman. <laughs> so kind of opposite status. But look at what they do. So, and and often in that story, we, we focus on the forgiveness aspect, right? She comes in and wets his hair and wipes it with her tears and puts oil on his feet. And, and mm -hmm. what Jesus rebukes Simon for doing is basically... You know, this goes into all honor and shame stuff, but basically Simon did not give honor Jesus at the meal. He didn't give a kiss. He didn't give oil. He didn't wash his feet. So here's somebody uh -huh. who is high status who dishonored Jesus with his actions. Uh -huh. Here is somebody who would have a dishonorable status or low status uh -huh. who acted honorably toward Jesus and who gets who gets forgiven it's it's a person with low status and we see that contrast all through the stories in jesus where you would have somebody who would expect it to be honored because of their status but act, acts dishonorably towards jesus anyway that was my dissertation and i saw this duality right it's it's how we behave how we treat one another within our status we can't escape our mm -hmm. status and even in the early church, you had rich, you had poor, you had women, you had men. It wasn't bad to be wealthy as you were to use that wealth for the church. And right. just as Jesus was like, you, you know, what are we going to do with our doctorate? You know? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So um, one of the things you mentioned in your book was that is that um, women, at least in Bible times, are put into a category rather than seen as individuals. Um, and so, although Jesus never directly, you know, talked about relationships between men and women, how did his interaction with women change their status? Yeah, absolutely. Um, let me back up a little. Um, okay. So, because because it's part of a broader narrative. Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay, so in Genesis, actually it starts in Genesis, this whole us them, right? So when when you know the woman, you know, when when God, you know, creates the woman, you know, what does Adam say? Right? The first thing he says is, you know, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She's one of mm -hmm. me. But what happens in the fall? This woman you gave me. <laughs> That's right. All of a sudden, the woman is the other. Right. So, and then we also see that Cain and Abel, am I my mm -hmm. brother's keeper? So what sin mm -hmm. does is make us them. And what happens when society gets more complex, these become classes of people. So we talk about mm -hmm. those women. You know, I was in a right. church fellowship when I heard that women are more, you know, when somebody was giving an explanation about why women shouldn't preach while well, women are more deceived and da da da. And so here I am sitting in with three doctorates going, am I more deceived with somebody than maybe has never read scripture? Right. You know, and you wonder, and my, you know, right. So my thought was, would you say Sue is more deceived? So if you can't right. say that about an individual, you shouldn't be saying it about a group. Right. 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 So, so and what Jesus did in his, no, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, yeah. and it's not just 
uh, gender, but it's anytime it's us, them kind of language. It's if it's not all, then don't say it about all. That's right. Talk about individuals. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what happens is we can easily dehumanize people by Absolutely. talking about categories. You know, uh, we have a lot of people who are unhomed here. Mm-hmm. And if we talk about homeless, they become, we pop them a, they become a problem. They become a category. And all of a sudden, they're not one of us. But if we talk about somebody who's lost their home, man, aren't we all? just one major emergency you know many people are just one major emergency um a loss mental health um tragedy for sure from losing our home mm-hmm. you know but when we put people in category and we say those people those homeless people you know you can think of you put whoever you want in that category the moment you put people in category you've dehumanized them. And that's a scary um, place to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that, that's, you know, we talk and I could go into social identity theory and how we do that in our narratives. So in our narratives, we create otherness. So we talk about people in terms that make them less like us if we want to exclude them or more uh-huh. like them. So a lot of the narrative in the complementary um, dialogue is to make women more, less like men make the the more distinction between men and women now there are um, uh-huh. but to be honest how that's perceived is varies culturally um, uh-huh. some you know so there are differences between men and women uh-huh. absolutely but if you're making a point to make an other you're going to make women so very different than men um so that you can make your point about how women, men and women are different therefore right um, right yeah, yeah. So anyway, in our book, Jackie actually came and found me. Um, I had kind of presented these ideas and figured I was done with them. And she actually tracked me down. I mean, she she spent a year tracking <laughs> me down. Um, I, I'm not much on social media, but she, she managed to find me. And, and she asked me to come speak to, she has a podcast with her Marcella group, which is Empowering Women. Um, and she does amazing things on that and talks about right now she's talking about body image and very powerful um, Mm -hmm. podcast. We got to talking, she asked me to speak and then the women, you know, I talked about this, you know, what we call the big word, social dementia of inaugurated eschatology and how, (laughs) how, you know, the Galatians 3.28, we didn't have to be complimentary, you know, it's not either, you know, so, so women in hierarchical structure, you don't have to dismantle hierarchy, but you transform hierarchy. You change the meaning of hierarchy. It's very difficult. You know, it is. In your, yeah. You know, power anyway, relationship. Yes. What's that? That's always yeah. tricky. Um, I was just going to say, because your book, one thing I found interesting is your book is neither complementarian nor egalitarian. It turns it all on its head. Yeah. No, we say, we, you know, it comes from my perspective that the Bible doesn't talk about roles. It talks mm-hmm. about relationships. Mm-hmm. And so we we come from that perspective. How should we behave towards one another? What does that look like? Yeah. You know, like I said, Paul talks so much about one anotherly. And then if you understand Paul, he's very missional as well. So often the places where there are prohibitions with women, it's in contexts where the church is very public. Okay. 
And so when it, and that's how I approached even the Timothy passage. Uh, yeah. I approached I, I approached it actually. Um, Dr. Long's Fred Long had a paper that really helped with that. But I had to ask. Paul is missional, and often when he talks about women, it's for a missional purpose. So the the question I had to ask when I approached Timothy, so I did. I laid out my assumptions. Here are my assumptions. Paul is missional. There was something going on that would distract from the main message of the church. Again, right? So when right. I'm when I'm a missionary in a culture, you know, in some places, you know, in in Togo culture, I I could never wear shorts. I could never wear short sleeves. You just don't because that would uh-huh. be a distraction, right? So there uh-huh. are things I didn't do that I had the freedom to do, but I didn't because it was inappropriate in that culture. Wearing long sleeves in other cultures, um, how I behaved in government office with officials, you know, mm-hmm. we did things that were missional because we didn't want anything to distract from the message of the gospel. Right. And we still do that, right? We still do that. Right. Yeah. Well, I had to ask myself, what was distracting? What was the problem? In Ephesus, because Ephesus was a crazy place. So I asked, what was what was distracting from the missional outreach of the mm-hmm. church? And yeah. that's that's how I approach that passage. Yeah. Because because you have to interpret it based on the whole of scripture and all of scripture where we see relationships are important. So how is this disrupting the relationships in the community or the church? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really appreciated your approach to all of that because I've heard different people talk about Paul and some like him, some, you know, don't like him at all. Um, And he just kind of gets a bad rap sometimes, I feel like. Um, But the way you address what you call the prickly passage in 1 Timothy 2, 11 (laughs) through 15, I found especially enlightening as you talked about it from the lens of culture and how Paul was trying to help take people from where they were to what he believed was God's hope for humanity. So how do Paul's writings reflect an understanding of liminality or living here, but on the way to somewhere else? Yeah, I think the household codes are a really good example of that. He wasn't dismantling that household code, right? He didn't say, okay, now you're going to, but he said, but he completely transformed it. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so, you know, the household code would, would be women submit, children submit, slaves submit. But now there's this mutuality, submit to one another. You know, he spends a lot more ink on men, on the husband, right? <laughs> I, I want to get right. a t-shirt for my husband, love, serve, die. Because basically that, that right? That's what he tells right? husbands to do, love, serve, die. Right. And so Paul was showing in this very hierarchical culture how to relate one anotherly and transform it. So now, now hierarchy was not domination but one of service so the more power you have the more people you serve i love this one of my friends became dean and he was just as i mean he's he's i always pictured him as a golden retriever just one of these really nice guys and i'm just thinking oh my goodness i can't believe you did that um for him to to step into the position of dean uh, a brilliant scholar too. So I was just like, what are you thinking? And he was a good friend. So I could, I could ask him this, but I asked him, I said, <laughs> what were you thinking 
And I'll never forget his response. He said, you know, I have been served by the dean for so many years. And we just felt, you know, that it was our turn to serve the faculty. And I oh, thought, wow. that's the answer you want from your boss, right? For sure. I took yeah. this position to serve. You know, that just transforms hierarchy, right? So how do I apply it to my life? As, as a professor, as I'm thinking in my courses, I'm thinking, how am I going to serve my students? Mm -hmm. You know, so in the assignments, how is the assignment going to serve my student in their professional development? You know, so not busy work, but there's really thought into how does this serve my students? Right. Because, you know, professors, you know, we kind of set the what we're going to do for assignment. And I love it when I was interviewing at undergraduate, my first job, the president asked every single faculty in their interview, how will students know that they love you, uh, that you love them? Mm -hmm. Wow. And that transforms our job. Right. How am I going to mm -hmm. love and serve my students? Now, that doesn't mean like, oh, yeah, you can turn in papers late and that kind of stuff, because that doesn't serve you well, right? That, right. <laughs> that's not serving you well. But it is. It, you know, it, it transforms how we view when we're in a position of, say, power over mm -hmm. people. It's, it, God gives us those positions because we're ready to serve more people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What would it look like yeah. if? individuals and the church started applying, not that they're not, but started applying these principles even more. Yeah, I, I think then it kind of transforms the what pastors do on its head. Um, so it's like how, you know, again, Paul talks about equipping the saints. So it's saying, how are people in my church serving their community? And how can I serve them to serve the community? Right. So like oh. all the teachers, how can we as a church serve you so you can do your job better? Um, say healthcare professionals, you know, how can we serve you so that you can do your ministry better? And it's also looking at vocation as missional, right? Uh -huh. So God yeah. has called us into these vocations. To be finished, I mean, that's one of the things I had to look coming from the mission field that that my calling hadn't changed to make disciples, my vocation changed. But I'm right. still making disciples. So our vocation may change. So how are people in different vocations? How we, can we help them make disciples? How can we serve them? So I think it's just, you know, again, when you have access to resources, when you have access to privilege, if you will, I mean, that kind of gets tossed around. How do you use that to serve others? So like for me, how, you know, make, you know, how can I serve my students? So like when I know there's um, conferences and things and I have opportunity to invite students into those conferences, mm -hmm. um, trying to do those kinds of things, you know, how, are, how can my networks help serve my students? So I'm not, I'm not a pastor, so I, I, you know, I've never had been, um, you know, I've always been an academic. So even when I was chair, like chair of the anthropology department, um, I made sure I figured out how to serve my faculty. So I had a, one of my faculty, um, he was, he's brilliant. I mean, he still is brilliant, just totally brilliant. Um, so he did really well in these very technical upper division courses. So I taught all the lower division 
generalized courses so that he could teach where he really, really excelled. Uh-huh. And, and, and neither of them really liked doing the advising. So I did all the advising. So I, I did kind of all the things to free them up to do what they did best. Right. Uh, so right. it was not like, not like using, okay, you guys are going to do the advising. I'm going to teach these. It was like, okay, where, how can, how can I serve this person so that they can use their gifts and talents that God has given them? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. One of the things, other things that you mentioned, because um, we've talked about using privilege to empower others, sharing our gifts, respecting other people. But I want to talk, one of the things you mentioned is not fearing our sexuality as we as we live our lives. So can you expound more on that and what that means and how we can do that? Yeah, in this culture, it's very difficult. You know, um, everyone's, you know, when I was teaching undergraduates, I would ask them their programs that they were watching, whether, and I'd watch them because people are learning more about sexuality from media than they are from the church, mm-hmm. right? And so what media says is, you know, you can have sex with everyone, right? Mm-hmm. Love's not an issue. Just, you know, one night stands, whatever, you know, whoever, male, female, just... So sexual attraction is the big thing. So the scriptures are just the opposite, right? If you're mm-hmm. viewing every man and woman as brothers and sisters, you know, we we do not have sex with... So there is even an idea of sex with a brother and sister. So if we're looking at men and women as our brothers and sisters, then you know, we have incest rules, right? We have rules <laughs> right. that says you cannot have sex with, you know, your sister and brother. And that's what I'm seeing. If, 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 if that's how we view one another versus a potential sexual partner, which our, mm-hmm. our, our media is teaching us that everyone's right. a potential sexual partner, right? Married, not married, young, old, whatever. That's the opposite of what scripture's teaching us. Right. Right. And I like the story that you told in your book about, um, maybe it was uh, Dr. Rose who told that, but about being in class and needing a ride to class. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us, tell Uh, us like briefly. It's really her story to tell and she tells it so well, but you know, the hesitation, you know, when you're the only woman now, to be honest, I faced it more in Christian circles than I did in secular circles. You know, I worked with men on the fire line. I worked with men and I don't know why it was never a problem. And again, that's a little bit 40 years ago. um, There wasn't so much sexualization of our culture. I mean, Mm -hmm. you watch any program today and it's, it's basically everyone's a potential sexual partner. Okay. So again, but that we have this kind of um, danger. Women are dangerous. Yes. And, and we have this in our, in our culture, um, in our Christian culture. And so if you're alone with a woman, oh my goodness, um, there's potential for, you know. And so when she was asking for a ride, nobody wanted to give her a ride because they're all afraid to be alone with a woman. 
right? It's good. <laughs> right. And she's like, I don't want to have sex with you. I just want to ride, you know, and, <laughs> and sometimes we have to state that, you know, but, but it does hurt women. This, this whole idea that every woman is a potential sexual partner, because that means you can't be mentored by men. You know, again, you have to be wise. You know, mm-hmm. I, I tell my students, okay, so I teach undergraduate students, right? And, mm-hmm. and they're like, oh, it just happened. I'm like, look, if you're out in a public place, it's not going to just happen. You know, it's like, be wise, guys. If you're alone in a dorm room and it's come, come on. Again, I learned that from the toggle where they didn't expect people to have personal boundaries. So there was always a chaperone whenever there were interesting a youth group and that was the big thing is like you know whenever the youth were going to do some the questions parents ask are who are the chaperones okay Uh, interesting so there just wasn't because there wasn't this again it was external boundaries is how they kept usually if there was any kind of premarital sex the parents were like oh it's our fault because we didn't chaperone them well enough okay in western culture we expect to have this internal boundary And so I tell students, look, if you're in public, nothing's going to (laughs) happen. You know, um, but I did learn about, you know, again, learning from the toggle that, you know, what kind of positions we put ourselves in too. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, so meet with a couple of women and couple of guys, if you want to mentor, if, if that's an issue, because there is a reputation because everybody assumes everybody's potential sexual partner. I I remember the first time, again, it was the same friend and I had just come back from, from the field and I was in his office and the door was closed. I'm like, I had to physically say, this is okay because I would never be alone in a room with a a man in that. In the toggle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. if I was going somewhere with Jimmy, there was always one of his kids with us, you know, in the oh, car. Yeah. So, so what would I say? You know, I, again, I think mentally, this is where we really need to, you know, be so countercultural and just say, unless God is really leading you into a marriage type relationship, then everyone else is not a potential sexual partner. It's just, you know, and if you're married, you don't even consider it. But if we're all brothers and sisters, we have more freedom. Absolutely. In, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Dr. Russell, this conversation has been a delight. We've talked about <laughs> so many things. Um, it's, I have one question I ask everyone, but is there anything okay. else that you'd like to say that we haven't already talked about? No, I appreciate being able to just talk about this. To, you know, again, uh, for pastors listening there, realize I, I have been more in academia. And so they're going to have to translate it contextually to their their church, their work, um, because I appreciate all of, all of the people because it's such a difficult time and such really? a difficult, you know, just in this culture and discipling people. And so my prayer for folks is that we could start this new conversation. We could start and looking at, you know, be aware of how we talk about groups of people and groups. And so it's a good lesson for me too. I have Mm -hmm. to be continually reminded about it. So no, I love Asbury. You know, this is this, I, because 
this is a great environment to talk about some of these things. Well, the one question we ask everyone, because the show is called the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast, what is one one practice, one thing you're doing that is helping you thrive in your life right now? There's two things. Let me do okay. one spiritual, one's physical. Um, one of the things I do is I train for Ironmans. So that kind of makes a commitment for me to stay physically active. Mm-hmm. So, um, and again, having been an athlete in college is kind of just when I get train. The other thing I did for myself is I wanted to go on a deeper spiritual journey. So Dallas Willard has always impressed me. So I, Dallas Willard and I have just been spending the last two years together and that has been rich. Um, Mm -hmm. So just finding somebody that I really, you know, really resonate with him. He's kind of started some of the spiritual formation movement, at least in, mm-hmm. in Southern California. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been, that's been really well um, rich. So that's one of the things I've, I've, those two things, especially in the COVID time that have allowed For me sure. to thrive um, yeah. and, and connecting with friends. <laughs> yeah. Even if it's virtually. <laughs> yeah. yeah can be willing to say, Hey, do you want to zoom? You know, that's just, yeah. You know, I had a long Zoom conversation with one of my students. It was just fun, you know. So yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I love that. Thanks so much, Dr. Russell, for being on the podcast today. I really appreciated it and enjoyed our conversation so I did much. Too. It's good to see you. It's good to see you. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for today's conversation with Dr. Russell. Just always enjoy getting to talk to her and catch up with her and today getting to share that conversation with you. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did as we seek ways to live our lives um, in ways that are witnesses to Jesus. So thank you for listening. And as always, you can follow us in all the places on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at, at Asbury Seminary. Until next time, I hope you'll go do something that helps you thrive.